The Olympics, they started this week. I know all of you are excited and maybe not, but uh, in the Johnson House, the Olympics is kind of fun. Definitely the opening ceremonies, you see this huge uh, cultural celebration and, and it's always the host nation's desire to, to kind of put the beauty of their culture on display. And anytime you have a, um, uh, an Olympics in an Asian country, it's always going to be, the opening ceremony is always going to have a lot of people in it. But it's also going to be very colorful and beautiful, and, and I know this one was, uh, was no different. And so uh, I don't know if you enjoyed watching that. I enjoyed watching that. There are over 2,952 athletes in Pyeongchang, South Korea. They hail from 92 different nations around the globe. And it's typically considered that if you're competing in the Olympics that you are uh, the, uh, one of the great, some, some of the greatest athletes in the world, right? Definitely the greatest athlete in that sport in your country, uh, probably one of the top athletes in the country. And so imagine this, how many of you are, uh, any, we got any 15-year-olds in here? 15? Close to 15? Hayden, you're not 15. Anybody? Okay, 16, 14, anybody? Okay, okay, some of these ladies down here. Okay, there are six 15-year-old athletes. The youngest one being Wu Ming from China. She, uh, you can go ahead and click it. This is a picture. For, this is not a mugshot. Okay, I guess this is some kind of Olympic ID badge uh, picture. But uh, 15 years old, she's competing on the world stage there uh, in um, in South Korea. And uh, but but lest we think that competitive sports on the world stage is exclusively for the young. Anybody want to guess how old the oldest athlete competing at the Pyeongchang Games, Olympic Games, is? Close. 85? No, not 85. Okay, you're the closest. It's 51 years old. Go ahead and click it. Uh, and, of course, it's got to be this sport. Uh, her name is Cheryl Bernard. She's 51 years old, and she is, uh, she is involved in the sport of curling. Tried to watch it the other day have no idea. It's like skee-ball on ice, maybe, but with a partner. I don't, it's, it's, and they scream, and they, and they sweep. It's, it's very interesting. Um, the top three oldest athletes compete in curling, which should maybe tell you something, right? It's a little bit more of a strategy game than an intense competition, uh, physical competition, more about strategy than intensity and endurance. Uh, but, but, uh, but older people, the next two down, the older, the, the next, uh, so the fourth and fifth place oldest in the Olympic Games. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and put that picture up there. Uh, it's the it's the the female on the left, right? Her name is Claudia Peckstein. She's forty five, and she is a speed skater, y'all. Speed skater, uh, and she is competing in her record seventh straight Olympics. So somebody do the math. How many years? 28 years on the world stage. I could do that math, Ron, but, I'm just, uh, but I just wanted to have somebody else get glory for that one. Um, 28 years she's been on the world stage competing. And the, the, the oldest male, he's also 45. He's competing in his record eight straight Olympics. Click it. This is, uh, this is Noriaki Kasai, and he competes uh, in, uh, in... He's a ski jumper. You know, one of those guys that go off and then fly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in fact, the oldest ever Olympian, anybody want to take a guess? Not 85, <laughs> somebody that, 85, yeah, 58. not 58, older than 58, 
72 years old. 72 years old competing in the, Olympic, in the Olympics. Of course, that was in the 20s, and we can definitely say there's something about that generation, right? Um, but, uh, but go ahead and click it, Addison, for me. In, in, in reflecting upon the utility of age, or one of the benefits of age, uh, a writer that I'm coming to enjoy more and more, a guy named Oz Guinness, he says this, he says, The way of excellence, as well as contentment, is to be our utmost for God's highest at whatever, way, whatever age we are. We tend to forget that many things in life are better with age. Amen? Right? Amen. God can use and has used people in their youth, but God also has accomplished some of his best work through people more advanced in life experience. You like, you like how he puts that? More advanced in life experience? Click it again. Billy Graham's got some encouragement for you as well. Far from being discouraged about getting older, he says the older generation may have a hard time keeping up with the younger, but let's remember that as long as we are still breathing, we, the older generation, you're leading the way. The generations that follow are learning about growing old from us. Are we good examples? While we've all made mistakes and would like to turn back the clock to correct some things, we know that this is not possible. But the lessons we have learned from our successes and failures can help those following behind us. I have a feeling that's kind of what Solomon was thinking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, when he said that a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Just think about that. How, how countercultural is that statement? The day of death better than the day of birth. You know why? It's because the day of death is all, I mean, the day of birth is all about opportunity. The future's wide open. But the day of death is about what's been done. It's about legacy. And I would imagine that those are the kind of thoughts going through this old man named Moses, going through his mind as he stands and he looks at a generation of young bucks, right? A generation of young people who have been given God's promise to go into the promised land, and yet at the same time, Moses stands there as an old man and he has some wisdom to share with them. And that's the book of Deuteronomy that we're about to go into. We, we saw last week God pronounced judgment on His people for their rebellion in the book of Numbers. Now, God was not going to break His promises to them. Instead, He was going to give them what they wanted. They were too afraid and faithless to enter the promised land, and so they wouldn't. And we, we saw that last week, and I want you to continue. I want you to, to continue that stream of thought about the fact that God will honor the choices you make in your life. Just think about that for a second. God will honor the choices that you make in your life. And this generation chose to complain, to rebel, and to fear instead of trusting God's promises. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 33, God told them, He said, And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Extremely harsh words. We talked about the fact that that's not just shepherds of sheep, that's shepherds of a dying generation. That was the consequence for that older generation, that their, their kids would literally have to shepherd them until the last one was put in the grave before God would move them to the next stage of their uh, spiritual development. God would take them into the fulfillment of His promises. That, that just stands as such a huge weight upon anyone with some 
some age on them, right? Some season, maybe some gray. Uh, it, uh, those of us who are parents and grandparents in this room, oh God, help us to be faithful. God, help us to be faithful. Now, the beautiful thing about what we're doing, this journey that we're on, we're seeing Israel make mistakes. But whereas if I was to preach through Leviticus or Numbers, right? No telling how many years we'd spend, right? On just Leviticus, right? Just going through the, the book. But we get the chance to see from a very unique perspective. We're going to see them fail. We're going to know why they fail. We get to apply that to our lives. But then we get the, the hopefulness of opportunity as Moses defines for this new generation what faithfulness should look like. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. And so for us, God still has life for us, y'all. God still has opportunity ahead of us. God still has desires and designs for us to walk on as we walk on this path of life. And so for us, we've seen their mistakes and their failures. We've seen the diagnosis of those mistakes and, their, and those failures. And now we get the privilege of having new and refreshed wisdom conveyed to us so that we can yet still apply it for our lives and not waste our lives as these people did in the wilderness. At the end of the book of Numbers, Israel is across the Jordan River from the land that God had promised to Abraham. And this younger generation is poised to go in and take it. So Moses decides to give them a pep talk. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And so let's dive into the book of Deuteronomy. The, the, if Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3, you can look at it, and this sets the context for us. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. Now, anytime you see that in the Old Testament... That means the 40th year, the first day of the 11th month, that doesn't mean like, four, like uh, November 1st, right? It's, it's not what that's like. When they left Egypt, God restarted their calendar, right? And so it's 40 years, 11 months, and one day since they left Egypt. How important did God want the Egypt experience to be? I mean, he set time by it, right? Kind of like for us, the B.C., A.D. thing. How important is the life of Christ? I mean, it sets time for us. And so God wanted them to understand uh, that Exodus experience all, on throughout the generations. And so it had been 40 years, 11 months, and one day since they had left Egypt. And so in chapters 1 through 11, uh, Moses explains what God has done. He kind of retells the story of what God has done in the Exodus and through the wilderness experience. And then he calls this younger generation to be more faithful than their parents. What he essentially does is he says, listen, you've seen and you've experienced God. And for those of you younger ones who haven't seen and experienced God because you weren't alive when the Exodus happened, you need to know that God has done something marvelous in our midst that has defined us as a people. And therefore, because of His great mercy towards us, every single day after that is meant to be lived in light of what He has done. It and that's, it's, it's a, it's a, it, that's the kind of stewardship that we have. When, when we were setting out a couple years ago to, um, to cast vision and to revise our constitution as a church, which sounds like a really, really boring process, and it kind of was, but at the same time, what I, what I, that first meeting when we sat down with the Constitutional Committee, I, I said to them th these very words, in 1834, 
God laid it on the hearts of men and women from a Baptist church in Lawrenceville, right up the road, to establish a Baptist church here in Abbeville. And at that point, with their lives, with their blood, sweat, and tears, their sacrifice, they made a deposit into our account, so to speak. And that deposit has been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And guess who's in charge of it now? We are. We don't want to waste that stewardship. That's what a stewardship is. It's something that you take care of. That's why the, some of the people who sign legal documents for our church are called trustees. They've been entrusted. But it's not just them. We have all been entrusted with a very precious thing in this church. That's exactly what Moses is saying to them. Listen, guys, because of what we've seen, because of what we've experienced, look at that, look at that ark over there. Uh, look at how the camp is arranged. Look at all that God has done. And I'm telling you that we are stewards of these marvelous works of God. And so we need to be faithful. And for them, it was you need to be more faithful than your parents were. And that's why you see those graves over there. That's why your parents died over there instead of over in the promised land is because of their faithlessness. So you be faithful and then in chapters 12 through 26, this is where the book of Deuteronomy gets its name. Deuteronomy is a Greek word which means second or repeated law. Second or repeated law. And so in chapters 12 through 26, Moses just repeats the law to them. In the first section of the book, he retold the story. In the second section of the book, he retells the law. And it's the main section of the book. He describes mainly how they're supposed to be singular in their worship of God. This, this one true God that has called them out of Egypt, that has, that has promised them this land that's in front of them, they need to be singular in their worship of that one true God. And they also need to have leaders who are people of character and integrity. And they should conduct how they should conduct themselves in marriage and in, in their families and in their businesses. And yet it was all centered around this idea of worship. Now remember God's purpose for Israel? God's purpose for Israel is that the people, they would be the people through whom His blessing is restored. When human beings were created, God put His blessing on them. When, when they sinned against God and were separated from God, that blessing was corrupted. It was lost to some degree. And so God made promises to Abraham saying, to you, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right. So the blessing will be restored. The blessing that was lost will be restored to the people, I mean, through the people of Israel, through Abraham's family. And so this is why Israel was established. And one of the ways this blessing would spread to the nations is how God tells Israel to treat widows, to treat orphans, and to treat immigrants in their midst. When you read these laws in the book of Deuteronomy, they're very intentional because it sets them apart from the nations around them. It makes them holy as God is holy. Remember, that was, the, that was one of the key verses in Leviticus. And so as they worship God, as they, as they worship Him and put Him at the center of their life, they would be on the cutting edge of justice in comparison to their ancient neighbors. And then we go to chapters 27 through 34. After this reproclamation of the law, Moses challenges them to follow the law. He calls them to a response. He kind of gives them, I mean, just think of Deuteronomy as one big message, right? One big sermon. And chapters uh, 27 through 34 are the time of invitation. It's the time of decision, right? And what he tells them, he says, if you do these things, everything's going to go great, y'all. 
He didn't use y'all, but you get the picture. It's going to go great. Uh, if, if, you, if you follow these laws, if you commit yourself to these laws, then you will find life and you will find blessing and you will find joy. But if you don't, you will find curses and you will be afflicted and you will ultimately be exiled from the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, he says this. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And then, De- and then Deuteronomy ends with Moses going up on the mountain, having lost the ability to go into the promised land because he... He, he made himself God in a way in, in the book of Numbers. He goes up on a mountain over, over, overlooking the promised land, and he dies after passing the torch to Joshua to be the new leader of Israel. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. But there are some very important truths for us as we consider what... Uh, Deuteronomy is saying, just the overall theme of Deuteronomy. We need to understand it. And so let's look at a few of these crucial truths, if you will. There was a researcher from Columbia University that found out that the average person makes about 70 decisions every single day. That's 2,000, I mean, that's 25,500 decisions per year. And let's say the average lifespan is about a little over 70 years. That's about 1,788,500 decisions. There's a 20th century philosopher named Albert Camus, and he said, life is the sum of all your choices. And so if you put all of these 1,788,500 choices together, that's who you are. It's a pretty cut and dry way of looking at life, isn't it? I mean, C.S. Lewis put it a different way. C.S. Lewis said this, kind of small, maybe you can read it. I'll read it for you. It says, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain, in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't do it, I'll do the other thing, right? Which is kind of, we get that from the message of Deuteronomy, I mean, from, from Moses' words in Deuteronomy. If you do this, blessing will come. If you don't do this, then curses will come, right? And, and C.S. Lewis isn't contradicting the Old Testament. What, he, what instead he is saying is he's clarifying. He's saying we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament, right? And so this is what he says. He says, I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, that you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, and I would add to it, the part of you that's made in the image of God, that you are turning into something a little different from what it was before, and taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, or 1,788,500 choices, All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing of who you are either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge is power. It's a long quote. All that to say this one thing is that with each and every choice you make on a daily basis, you are becoming something. With each and every choice that you make on a daily basis, you are becoming something. You are, let's just think about it from a biological standpoint, physical standpoint. 
you're becoming something with every bite of food that you put in your mouth, right? You're becoming something with how much sleep you get, your choice in how much sleep you get. You're becoming something with what you listen to on the radio. You're becoming something with how you choose to spend your money. You're becoming something as you choose whether or not to obey traffic calls. You're becoming something when you, when you are picking out your clothes in the morning. Have you ever, I mean, really, have you ever stopped and just thought about all of these different choices and the fact that you are using a part of you that God gave you to do something very specific with And yet, because of what Adam and Eve did, you can use it to either become, like C.S. Lewis says, a heavenly creature, a creature that follows God's design and submits his life to God, or you can use that part of you that God gave you to be a blessing to, to him and to the people around you. You can use that to turn into a hellish creature, is what he says. You see, the idea of choosing is at the heart of Deuteronomy. I don't think we can emphasize that too much. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen in Leviticus and Numbers that God wants His presence to be at the center of our lives. Well, what does that even mean? We talk about what it means to be a worshiper and to live for the glory of God. Which, by the way, I'm amazed that y'all put up with me, just to be quite honest. Because I really, the more that I think about it, the more that I feel like I preach the same thing every week. And, and I, I want to I I tell you, because I feel like I've had clarity brought upon me. I mean, the longer you walk in a certain direction, the clearer it becomes, typically, right? Especially if you're walking in obedience to God. And so as I've, as I've just gone throughout ministry, I've realized what I am, and I've realized what I'm not. And can I just, can I just give you this, like, moment that I've had over the last couple, of, I mean, really the last year? Do you know what my soul purpose, desire, what gets me up in the morning as a pastor. You know what that is? It's to help you and others, but primarily you, know what it looks like on a very practical basis to walk with God. You say, Ryan, what's the purpose of your life in terms of your ministry calling? That's it. You may want me to tell you who to vote for, and what kind of music to listen to, and what kind of clothes to wear, and what kind of movies to watch, and what kind of, you know, what kind of house to live in. Mean, I don't know why you want me to tell you what kind of house to live in, but I mean, you, you, you may want all of these other, other decisions, but what I've realized is that I'm pretty much useless in a lot of those other, other areas, but if I can just help you understand how to enter into the throne room of God and to rest in His presence, to abide in Him, to understand that He has a purpose for you, that He's gifted you, that He's equipped you, that He's called you to be faithful in His stewardship, and to help you understand what that looks like, then He'll answer those questions for you. And so if, you're, if you've been here for any length of time, and you just keep hearing me say something about being a worshiper of God, and in a moment where I'm going to talk about the, about the importance of the Bible, and that's like every week, right? And if, you hear, if you're in my Sunday school class, you get it like twice on Sunday, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's rough. So, but you hear these things from me over and over and over and over again. You know why? Because if I can just get you there, into the presence of God, where you can hear God apply His Word 
to your life and you can fix your eyes on Him, then He will answer every single one of those questions that you have about what's in front of you. He will direct your paths. He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And you'll find joy and hope and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. You will find those things for your life if you can find your way into the presence of God. And so I have no other purpose than to help you understand what that looks like on a very practical basis. And that's what we're about to talk about, which is why I gave you that little excursus there, because I, I just want you to understand, this is the way I'm wired. And I really don't think I'm going to change. I don't think it's for your detriment that I stay the same. And so if you hear these things over and over and over and over from me, it's because some people have never heard it before. And the rest of us, me included, have areas of our life where we're not applying it. And so no matter how young of a believer you are, or old a believer you are, I think it fits us right where we're at. And so, what does it look like to live faithfully for the glory of God? And some of you may have been surprised when I skipped over Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which are like, it's the key verse for the book of Deuteronomy. And so if you, if you got your Bible open, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and if you don't have it underlined, you need to underline it. If you don't have it highlighted, you need to highlight it. If you have it underlined, you need to highlight it. If you have it highlighted, you need to underline it again, right? An asterisk, you need to put those. Like That is the main purpose of the book of, of, of Deuteronomy, is to tell you this one thing, right? This encapsulates the entire message of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's on the screen uh, after you've highlighted and underlined and asterisked it, right? Because it's got the words emphasized that encapsulate even this verse and the book of Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel. Now stop right there. This is traditionally called the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. The Shema. And Shema is simply the Hebrew word for hear or listen. It would be another way to, to translate it. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's just one God. This is the one God that's called you out of Egypt. This is the one God that's delivered you with, with miracles and might. There's just one God. And so hear about this one God. Listen to Him, Israel. Listen to Him, Israel. And that word listen doesn't just mean listen, as you can imagine. It includes the idea of responding to what you hear. It's basically what a parent, when a parent tells you, listen to me, right? They don't expect you just to like, you know hear them, but they want you to heed what they're saying, right? So in this word, listen or hear, is the idea of responding, of, of heeding what has been said. And so just think about it. If this is God, the one God of the universe, that there is no other, if this is one God, not Moses, if it's one God, not Ryan, speaking through this word, then you need to pay careful attention and respond to these words. And only as you respond do you have a clear indication that you've actually heard it. You get that? What's the true test of discipleship? It's not just that you're sitting here on Sunday mornings. It's not even just that you're reading your Bible on a daily basis. It's not what kind of music you listen to, who you vote for, what kind of clothes you wear. You get that? It's not about that. It's about are you connected and communicating with the God of the universe, in such a way that your life is being shaped and transformed. That you're responding. You say, Ryan, what does it mean to have a quiet time? Two simple words. Read and respond. Hear and heed. <laughs> I love alliteration, right? Read and respond. Hear and heed. Just 
Just submit, obey. That's, that's all wrapped up in this word here. But he doesn't just stop when he says hear or listen. Right? He says the key word of this verse, another key word of this verse is love. Love. You shall love the Lord your God. You see, the kind of response that characterizes true and authentic listening to the Word of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love is the true motivation for obeying God. You, you might have heard an illustration like this before, but you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. You know, Guys, let me give you a hint. Okay, And this is, this is not regarding the gift that you would buy your spouse, your girlfriend, whatever. This is just simply regarding the attitude, okay? Your wife, spouse, significant other will not feel loved if when you hand her the roses, chocolates, whatever you're going to do there, right? They will not feel loved if when they say, Oh, thank you, you're so sweet. They're not going to respond well if you respond back to them. That's just what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I heard it. Uh-huh. You heard it. Men, did you hear that audible, like, visceral response? That's legit. Like, you can take that to the bank, okay? That's not the way to do it, right? But when she says, oh, that's so sweet, you didn't have to. I just did it because I love you, baby, right? In that tone, too. You need to use that tone. It's important. (laughs) You can laugh. It's okay. We're at church. It's okay. Uh, But seriously, love is the key, is it not? That's why, that's why we looked last week at, at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Delight, or that's not Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but there's another verse, Psalm 37, Psalm 34, 37. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Do you know that, that word delight is a command? God's saying, love me. This is it. This is the key to it all. This is what Christianity is about. This is what walking in the Word of God is about. It's about listening and then saying, man, I love that guy. I love God. I love, I love Him so much. God is so awesome. He's been so amazing to me. And therefore, everything I do, I want to do to His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 In word, in deed, I want to do everything for Him. That's what it means to listen. Is to overflow in love to this God who's delivered you. You see, obedience without the motivation of love is not what the Lord is ultimately after. Somebody, somebody texted me last night. Y'all, y'all know we have digital giving. And, and, uh, and, and this person, I don't know why, but they decided they, I'm their accountability partner in terms of giving. And, and they texted me and they said, I tithe today. I was like, hey, great. And they're, they're, they don't live here. They're off. And so they said, and, and, and I asked, I think it kind of surprised me. I asked them, I said, did you do it with a cheerful heart? <laughs> and their response was, does that matter? I said, oh, absolutely it does. I said, absolutely it does. I said, God's not after, once again, God providing illustrations like the day before, right? God's not ultimately after just your obedience. God wants you to love him. Whether you're talking about coming to church on a Sunday, going to work with a job he's provided to you, driving a car that he's provided you, with a family sitting around a table that he's provided for you, God wants you 
to love Him. And He doesn't just command love. What has He done? He has put His mercies on display. He has given us a world that even when it thunders outside, that we stand in awe of the one who created thunder and wonder what his presence is going to be like. It's about love. And so the implication is clear for Israel and for us. If we do listen and love, we will fulfill the original promise God gave to Abraham. If we live a lifestyle of worship, then guess what God is going to do through Israel and through us? then it's going to put the wisdom and justice and beauty and might of God on display for all nations to see and thus become a blessing. Then That's why Psalm chapter 67, verse 4 says, says, uh, says that the, um, as, the, as the light of your face shines upon us, right, that the nations will have joy. And that's the reason that God shines upon us, is so so that we will be that vessel to spread that blessing to all nations. And that is the core verse of the book of Deuteronomy. But there's something else. There's there's an opposite side of the coin to see. The Shema says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me switch the slide. What, What the other side of it is, true worship brings life, but false worship does something totally and horrifically different. You see, many people read the, the book of Deuteronomy and they're perplexed by, just like the book of Leviticus. I still have trouble saying that word. Book of Leviticus, right? They're perplexed by all of these weird laws about what you can eat and what you can wear and what, why in the world, God, are you worried about that? And it's really helpful for us when we read those laws and we're confused by like why God would tell them not to eat shrimp or wear fabric of mixed clothing, or do other things, right? Purity laws and, and, uh, and to care for wi- the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. You see, what God was doing was that as they obeyed and as they worshipped Him, God was setting them apart from the nations around them because those nations around them had laws that, that victimized people. They had laws that exploited widows and orphans and, and put them into child labor. And then they, they treated immigrants with utter contempt and they would slaughter them. And so if they worshiped God, then they would be set apart and the nations would look at Israel and they would see a distinction. And what ultimately what Moses is trying to say is he's trying to say, look at the worship of those other nations, those pagan nations in the land of Canaan. Do you know what's happening? As they're worshiping that false god, they're degrading themselves and they're degrading the people around them. They're they're objectifying and victimizing the people around them because they think that's what their gods want them to do. But I'm telling you, I have come so that you can be a beacon of light and life because the world has not seen that. Now, we don't get that because we're in a nation that has been incredibly blessed to have a foundation of biblical ethics. But you, you, you take what goes on here, just in our prison system, for instance, and you compare it to what Paul, how Paul was in prison, or you compare it to what goes on in North Korea to this day, why are we different? It's because our founders recognize, and even since then, our people have recognized that there's a dignity to each and every human life. And so as, as Israel worshiped God, then they would become a light and a blessing to the nations around them. They would stand apart from them. And so worship 
is meant to bring life. Worship is meant to make you distinct. As you choose to, even as you've chosen to be here today, going back to that C.S. Lewis quote, God is making you into something. As you, cho- as you choose later on what to watch on TV for not tonight, you are choosing to be made into something. What is that something? That's what you're accountable for. I can't tell you that. That's what you're accountable for. And you need to begin to look at your life, not to be frozen. Oh God, what do you want me to do? But to recognize that as you choose Him, as you choose to put Him first and at the center of your life, then what He is making you into into be is what your husband and your wife and your family need you to be. That He is making you what your neighbors need you to be. That He's making you what your co-workers need you to be. Worship brings life, not just for you, but as you overflow that life into the people around you. It's another message of the book of Deuteronomy. But, but lastly, Moses is going to direct us to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem. Uh, one more there. The heart of the problem. And I mean, I, yeah. Um, at the very beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 30, in fact, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 if you're still there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. At the very beginning, I I quoted verse 19, which is another one you can underline if you want to understand the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, verse 19. But but even at the beginning of chapter 30, Moses says something weird, just to be quite honest. He's told Israel that they will go in and they will possess the land... And they would see God do amazing things, but that they would ultimately rebel. He's told them this, right? And you're thinking, wow, Moses, you went from a pep talk. I mean, imagine a football coach saying, listen, guys, we have, we have practiced all week long. You guys have the best equipment. You guys have the best coaches. We practiced hard. You've shed blood on the practice field this week. You guys, you, you guys know the offense. You can execute any play. You know the defense. You know, you know what their offense is going to run. You know how to stop them. But we're going to lose. <laughs> I mean, right? Like anybody who plays Alabama, right? I mean, that's what... That's what <laughs> We're going to lose. Oh, we're going to lose. Right? You think, okay, that coach is getting fired. Because that's not what you do in a pep talk, right? You get them riled up to where they're ready to just run out of the tunnel and go clobber who's ever in front of them. But Moses here in Exodus 30, that's exactly what he does. He says, listen, God's going to do this, and God's done this, and God set you apart in this way, but you're going to disobey God. And you're going to go into exile. Why would he do that? The Lord's speaking through Moses at this point. The problem is not that we can't hear God. The problem is that we don't truly heed with a heart of love. We can listen, but we don't truly respond. And therein lies the problem. Our hearts. Our hearts are the problem. The adage, hear me on this, the adage, follow, our, follow your heart, is one of the most damnable heresies that has ever come out of American theology. Can I just say that again? Because I like the word damnable in, 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 in terms of fo- the follow your heart uh, mentality. The, the, the phrase, the encouragement, the adage, follow your heart, is one of the most damnable heresies that has ever come out of American 
pop theology. Why? Because it's wrong. It's wrong. It's very, very wrong. You say, well, Ryan, you're coming down awfully hard there. And that's because of this. Moses, he's been there for most of the journey, right? Since Exodus. He's been there. And the problem with Israel is not that they haven't followed their hearts. What's the problem with Israel? They followed their hearts too much. You get that? That's, I mean, have you seen that? We've, we've been going through this together. You've seen that? Israel hasn't trusted in the Lord. Israel's complained against the Lord. Israel hasn't, hasn't believed the promises of the Lord. Israel has, has rebelled against the promises of the Lord. Why? Because the problem is in here. It's not in here. It's not in the ability to hear like you're physically deaf. It's not that they hadn't seen. The people in the book of Numbers had seen God move in the Exodus. The 40-year the journey was supposed to take 11 days. They'd seen God move mightily, but their hearts were wicked. They followed their hearts too much. And this has been the root of the problem throughout the entire Old Testament so far. The, the problem that plagues the human race. It's the problem that plagued Adam and Eve. They followed their own heart. The problem that plagued Cain as he slaughtered his brother Abel. He followed his own heart. The generation that died in the wilderness, Noah and the people of his day, the people of Noah's day followed their own hearts. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what they were doing? Following their hearts. And they all proved the truth in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we're going to see it later on in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is another way of saying everybody followed his heart. <laughs> in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, there is a way that seems right to a man to follow your heart, but in the end, its way is death. So Moses foretells of a day, and look at verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses, you can underline this first. I like underlining the Bible. Moses tells us and the people of Israel in verse 6 something that prophets hundreds of years later named Jeremiah and Ezekiel, kind of a big deal in terms of the whole prophetic realm. They look back on the same thing that Moses is saying in this verse. Kind of an important verse in terms of the Old Testament. Verse 6. You're going to go into exile and the Lord is going to bring you back. That's what verse 5 says. And in verse 6, how is he going to bring you back? He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you, so that, causation, so that God will be the driving force behind what happens. So that you will what? Love. What was the problem? They didn't love God enough. They loved their own heart. They loved to follow their own ways. But God will one day bring about a power through some means to redeem the heart, to change the heart, so that we will love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, so that we may live. Last Sunday night, we had a message called Show Me Christ in the Old Testament. And we'll have another one of those in a few weeks and pick up where we left off. We did Genesis through Numbers, but here in Deuteronomy, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Moses point to Jesus And as Moses points to Jesus, he still points to us. 
because we are a people that follow our own hearts. We do things that seem right to us. And then we dare anybody to hold us accountable. So how do we deal with the problem of our heart? How will you today deal with the problem of your heart? Because the fact is that you may be here and you may be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but you still have a wicked heart that is raging inside of you to do one thing, what it wants to. And you can't tell me any different, Ryan. That's what, that's what our hearts long to do. And so how do we deal with the problem of our heart? We daily live, the first song we sang, by faith. We live by faith, which means we cling to Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. But if we want to live by faith and we want to walk with Jesus and we want to worship, we've got to be careful not to worship like the world worships. Be careful not to blend in and unwittingly degrade ourselves and our children and the people around us because that's what false worship does. But we've got to worship God on His terms. Hearing and heeding the Word of God on a daily basis. Because you know what happens when we do that? We're choosing life. We're choosing life. We're uniting with the purpose of the Spirit for the reason He's been put inside of us. We are choosing to walk the path of life that He is carving out for us. And in a way, we're not only choosing it for ourselves, but we're choosing it for our children and for the people around us who desperately need life to flow from us. Just to set you up, because you're here, I've already told you we're going to feed you. You're going to hear a testimony about what this looks like at business meeting. Now, that's something you've never heard in a Baptist church, right? The invitation is just going to get you to business meeting so you hear another, some more good news, another awesome story about a real person, a real life that this transformed. And so I want us to have our time of invitation, and I want you to answer that question for yourself. What choices have I made this past week, and what is it making me? Because I know your conscience has been pricked that some area of your life is left unsurrendered. And that if you have a decision to make, if you want to join this church, if you want to be baptized, if you, if you need to be saved today, then I'm going to be right down here and you can come and talk to me. And I want to help you understand what it looks like to walk with God. And if you don't feel comfortable coming down front in a service like this, then I'm here. And I want you to come and pull me to the side and say, I need you to help me understand what it looks like to walk with God. Because let me tell you, God hasn't made it complicated. But it's life for you. It's life for me, so we need to understand it. And so, what choice do you need to make today? And in answering that question, what are you becoming? And so with that in mind, let me pray.